We told you we're ramping up. Joe's ramped up. That's good, man. Last week, we began a new series. And the new series is entitled, Thinking Biblically in a Culturally Divided World. And the challenge of the series is for us to not get caught up in the riffraff of contemporary culture that continues to uh, bat things right and left and whatever position people are on, but to be able to come to our present world with a mindset that is framed from scriptures. To think biblically in a culturally divided world. And I was pleased and encouraged with uh, how we kicked things off a little bit last week and how we got things going. But I realized afterwards, I think I bit off an awful lot for this series. And uh, so I want to just give a little bit of a recap from last week and then jump into what I felt God was calling us to do for this week. And uh, last week, if you recall, we listed a few of the culturally divided kind of aspects of our world. You could have discussions with your neighbors, with your friends, with your co-workers, with fellow students, and you could debate things like marriage and divorce, sexuality, gender equality and identity, racial and ethnic parity, rights of the unborn and the aging, authority of the government, environment, immigration, religious freedom, so on and so forth. It could go and go and go and go. And we spent a lot of our time trying to process where we would stand on that, what we think about it. And sometimes I wonder, does God really want us to have all that uh, mental and emotional horsepower going into trying to decipher all this? We live in a hyper-information age. And so we're bombarded by information and then with social media, not just with the content, but with debate and commentary and the back and forth. And now, you, you know, in these past couple decades, you got all the 24-hour news. And so we find ourselves consumed in a world that is dumping content and issues in our lap. And we're just trying to maintain our own life, our own household, uh, be faithful in our workplace. And sometimes it can be quite inundating and overwhelming. But we are called to think biblically in all the cultural divides that are going on, and to think biblically when it comes to our own life and the raising of our family and the influence that we have on others for the kingdom of God. It says this in Matthew 6.22, Jesus speaking. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And the eye being the lamp of the body and giving light to the whole world that we're a part of has to be seen through a biblical lens. And last week we said your worldview makes a world of difference. Your worldview makes a world of difference. And we had this diagram that we placed up here, which is a sphere and has different layers, like different layers of an onion or something like that, or an eyeball we mentioned is a sphere, right? And so on the outside, we're looking at what people are doing or what we're doing, what our behavior is, what is done. But what is done is based many a times upon the next tier inside that sphere, which is our values, what is good or what is best. But our values or what we really believe what's good and best in life from which we do our behaviors 
is based upon our beliefs. What do we believe is true? But what we believe is true comes from the interior core of our worldview, what we believe is real. What corresponds the most to reality? And when you look at your life and you look at your participation in public discussion, when you look at your participation in uh, uh, conversing on cultural divide issues, you can work your way back to, well, what's my worldview? And how is their worldview different from my worldview? And so that's where we sort of journeyed last week. And we said this, that a biblical worldview that we're called to have has two key aspects to it. The first is it recognizes God Himself is the unique source of all truth. And secondly, it relates all truth back to an understanding of God and His purposes in this life and the life to come. Do you have a biblical worldview this morning? Do you believe, as it states up here, do you believe that God Himself is the unique source of all truth? Or do you believe there's pockets of truth and, and, and just sort of people's opinions and what maybe comes about or what maybe uh, the majority might decide? Does all truth come from God? Or here's even a deeper question for your worldview. Do you believe that there is truth? Ah, uh, there's no truth in this world. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. The only problem with that kind of statement is you have to ask the question then, well, is what you just said true? Because if there is no absolute truth, then you can't conjecture and postulate that opinion that there is no absolute truth. So it's sort of a self-defeating kind of argument. We live in a world today that's not all that concerned with truth. What's our world concerned with? Happiness. Now, we don't want to say that. That sounds sort of self-centered, right? But the reality is from day to day, week to week, we're sort of consumed with what's our happiness and whether our happiness comes through monetary means or relationships or maybe doing something worthwhile that we like. We're just sort of consumed self-centered self. But that's been going on for generations upon generations and centuries and millenniums and millenniums. But do you concern yourself with truth? And where does your truth come from? Does your truth come from God Himself? And then from there, does all truth and understanding of purposes in this life and the life of com to come go back to that biblical worldview? And so we're called, we're called to be able uh, to think biblically, but we must first decide that we believe that there is truth that can come from God by which we can think biblically. One of the things we just passed over quickly last week was this aspect that in this thinking biblically in a culturally divided world, that what we need to do is we need to separate what's a biblical principle from a cultural preference. Because culture does change, and there are preferences and stylistic things and personalities. God's made a proliferation of personalities, and so there's different kinds of, uh, of uh, interests and things we look at. And so it all gets combobulated together as to, well, you know, what, what in the biblical is a principle of preference, or how do we separate those two when the Bible was saying this? Was that just sort of because of that day and what they were going through and what they believed back then? What about now? Everything sort of ends up a little bit fluid, we 
think sometimes. Well, you'll have to work. You'll have to put your mental brain hat on. You're going to have to think biblically. What is truly a biblical principle that goes back to God himself being the truth and all of our purpose and well-being come from that principle? What is the difference between a biblical principle and, oh, that's just a cultural preference? And don't spend a lot of time beating yourself up on the cultural preference stuff. There's beauty and diversity. But we have to distinguish between biblical principles and cultural preferences. Why? Biblical principles never change. But cultural preferences often do. You're in a culture that forces you to believe that biblical principles often change too. But that's not what Scripture upholds. It's not what history has pointed to. Biblical principles of truth. If something is true, that it's true, that it's true, then it doesn't change over time in various places or with different kinds of situations and different kinds of people. Now, I said I felt I got myself into something with this series, and I really was weighed in prayer as to where to take this week. But to be honest with you, when I look at this statement, to think biblically in a culturally divided world, the idea of thinking biblically has a major problem to it today. You can think biblically. You can define what a biblical principle is and distinguish that from a cultural preference. But the challenge today, I think, is more in the area of authority. Does the Bible have authority in our life? And so I just have to camp there briefly here today before we continue running with this series and maybe get into some issues. I don't know how it's all going to be unpacked, but I want you to know that this issue of uh, authority and does the Bible have authority in our life is of utmost importance in this generation. The generation that's being educated. The generation that's taken over mainstream America and elsewhere. Does the Bible have an, oh, I go to church. I, 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 I have some trust and confidence in the Bible and, and, and some belief in it. And I can think of the difference between a biblical principle from a biblical worldview and a cultural preference. But does this Bible have any authority to speak into my life? And it's not the book itself. I just want to reference here today. It's the truth that's written in this book, does that truth have authority over my life? Let me ask you, in your household, who has more authority? I could ask some teenagers here today because I see this happening in my household sometimes. It's like, okay, I'm going to go ask mom. Mom says, I'm now going to go ask dad. Well, wait a second, dad said something different than mom said. And I'm like, oh no, this is not good. I know where this is going, right? That we need to be on the same page. And parents, that's a don't, don't let your kids pit yourself back and forth one to another. But just be on the same page kind of idea. But who has the more authority in your life? Or I was even thinking about this. You might think it's sort of a weird kind of analogy. But who has more authority over the pets in your life, in your household? Sometimes we want our dog to go out and do its business, right? And I hear the comment, well, I've, I told her to go. I've told her to go. She won't go out. 
And I'm sort of the meanie in my house, and so I just look at her and say, Maggie, get outside. Oh, she gets up and with her old body and she mingers out. Now, that's probably not a good analogy of authority, all right? But it's this comment of who has authority to speak into your life and who do you end up obeying? And is it anywhere near something that's biblical? Or is it because of what your friend said? Well, my friend said this was okay or told me to do this. I'm going that. And they sort of have this overwhelming sense of not authority as you might think it, but they, uh, um, they can influence you. And so you sort of are pulled that direction with that stream of thinking. All right? Who pulls you in the direction of truth? Is it the Scripture? Because it's foolish for us to try to think biblically if we don't think that the Bible has authority over our life. Okay? So there's a lot of different roads I could go down to with this this morning. As you see listed up here, uh, there's the issue of the reliability of Scripture, the inspiration of the Bible, inerrancy of the Bible, and the authority of the Bible. So, can we trust all that's been written in this book? And actually, it's not one book, right? It's how many books? It's 66 books, all right? Some were written before Jesus Christ came, and some were written after Jesus Christ came. It's a compilation of, of historical record. Uh, it's uh, poems. It's prophecy. It's uh, uh, the Gospels, uh, storyline stuff. It's epistles, letters. It's a, uh, a, a, a future end time kind of stuff written. It's a compilation, an incredible compilation, but... Is it reliable? And if you have questions concerning that, I want to challenge you to study it and just Google up on it or, or work with it. But I'm not going to go after the reliability of Scripture here today. What about the inspiration of Scripture? Was, was the Bible inspired by God? If all truth comes from God and we say it's God's Word, then did God really inspire what's written here? Okay? Well, did, did he inspire it because of, uh, you know, he told, he dictated it. So the apostle Paul's sitting there in his prison cell and they're going, and he's trying to tune himself. What's the next word? The, the, uh, true, the, the truth is that, is that how it happened? No. But the Holy Spirit living within Paul inspired him as he wrote the Scriptures, what he uh, recognized as letters to Christians, but he knew there was authority in it. Sometimes you hear the distinguishing uh, in Paul's letter says, uh, this is what the Lord says, but I say to you. But that doesn't mean that Paul was saying, well, hey, that's the real stuff. What I'm saying to you is just sort of the opinion section of the newspaper, right? No, he was trying to distinguish between the words of Jesus and what his words were, but it was all seen as authoritative. And you walk through it and the inspiration of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament is there. And he inspired it by coming upon people and leading people, whether them writing historical things or uh, the poems, the psalms, prophetic words, all right, or uh, letters that were written by either Paul or Peter, or James. I mean, it's it's inspired word of God. But I'm not going to go there. What about the inerrancy of Scripture? A lot could debate. Was everything there true? I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture that everything written in its original 
uh, uh, form and it's, uh, for what affirmation it was is literally true. But there's a lot of debate and you can nitpick different places. What about this? What about that? I'm not going to go there. The inerrancy of Scripture that is without error in its original form and original intent is uh, a pinnacle thing to believe in. In fact, if you start to not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, it's like water snow melting at the top of a mountain. Um, one person says it, it, it all appears there together, but if you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, it's going to go down one side of the mountain in a whole different river than if it goes down the other side of the mountain and ends up in a whole different place. Inerrancy of Scripture is critical. But what I'm challenging you, you and I with this morning is the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Does the Bible have any sway, the biblical worldview, upon our life and should we obey it? Should we obey it or should we um, just read it within its good context and be grateful that um, there is some nice words of guidance and encouragement, prayers, and then just go on our way and make our decisions as we would want to make those decisions. Second Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now this is Scripture, a letter Paul wrote to Timothy, exhorting him about the Scripture gone before, that it is there, and it's useful for our teaching, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work. That's a straight on verse. So if you're talking about the authority of Scripture, then you're going to be going to that verse. And that verse is going to be meaningful in your life. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Another great verse for you and I to say, well, there's authority that's in the Scripture. But, this aspect of the authority of the Bible, you can't say, well, the Bible says so. So you just got to believe it. Right? Some of you know the old song. Get that air back on there, Frank. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. How many of you grew up with that? We sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? Well, you just can't jump there today with our current culture. There is an erosion of not only biblical belief, but an erosion of a biblical worldview. And we have to have more than just somebody says, if the Bible says it, then that settles it. You've heard that one. Because today, there's a growing majority of people that no longer believe in the authority of the Scriptures. And especially so among younger generations and the millennials. 
And so when they go to college and other things and they're up against very uh, antagonistic teaching uh, or skeptical teaching concerning things of Scripture, it seemingly they start to lose their faith. It's like, well, that, that's not true in the Bible. Not that's true. Then the whole house of cards sort of falls. And it falls and you're like, oh my goodness, then, then my faith and everything else. Well, friends, the authority of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, even the reliability and the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture, all that needs to be based on more than just, well, my mom taught me that. I sang a song when I was in, in Sunday school. So it must be that does not hack it. There was a survey that was published actually just this very week from the Cultural Research Center. And uh, this is headed up some by a guy by the name of George Barna. And it is part of a larger uh, ongoing study called the American Worldview Inventory. I want to read to you some of the statements that were in this survey, and you can answer them. I won't have you answer them out loud, but this will be indicative of maybe maybe where you're at in your perspective of the Bible's authority or truth today, where your worldview is at, is a biblical worldview or not. And these questions were presented back in the earlier part of this year to 2,000 adults, and they do that compilation, and they come down to breaking them into four different groups. These were people that uh, say they would believe in God, if you will. And the first group was the evangelicals. The second group was the Pentecostals. The third group was mainline uh, churches, uh, Protestantism. And then the fourth group was uh, Catholics, Catholicism. And these questions were presented to them, and the question was, do you believe this to be true? And the percentages I'm going to give you are the percentages of those who rejected, rejected the statement as being true. And I could look in each of the different categories, from the evangelicals, Pentecostals, uh, the mainline to the Catholics, but I'm going to stay predominantly in the evangelical camp, which is what we are. People that would believe uh, in the Scripture, supposedly right. People that would believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. All right. So here are the evangelical camp's responses in this uh, survey uh, concerning beliefs in the Bible. First is, people are not basically good. We are sinners. 75% of evangelicals rejected that statement. Which faith you embrace matters as much or more than simply having some faith. 62% of evangelicals rejected that statement. The Holy Spirit is not just a symbol of power, presence, or purity, but is a real influential being. The Holy Spirit is a real person, in other words. 58% of evangelicals rejected that. If you will look at mainline, it's 73% rejected. There are absolute moral truths that apply to everyone all the time. What do you think the evangelical rejection percentage was on that? 52% of evangelicals rejected that statement. People cannot earn a place in heaven by being good or by doing enough good works. 58% of evangelicals rejected that. 85% of Catholics rejected that statement, thinking that you can do stuff that's good that gets you into heaven. The Bible is ambiguous in its teaching about abortion. 
44% of evangelicals rejected that statement. When Jesus Christ was on earth, he was fully human, but he did not sin. So did Jesus sin when he was on earth? How would you answer that question? 43% of evangelicals rejected that question. The Bible is the primary source for moral guidance. That's what we're talking about, right? Thinking biblically. Here we are in an evangelical church. How many of you would agree with that statement? That statement that the Bible is the primary source of all moral guidance. 42% of evangelicals rejected that statement. That's not true, they would say. 71% of mainline and 77% of Catholics. Personally certain to have eternal life only because you have confessed your sins and accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, thankfully, it's not as high as the others, but evangelicals reject even that statement. 28%. God is the basis of all truth. 28% reject that statement as evangelicals. 63% of mainline uh, denominational people rejected that statement. And the Bible is the Word of God it is trustworthy. It is reliable. Only 26% of evangelicals, 26% of evangelicals rejected that statement, saying that in a room such as this, only 75% of you believe that statement that this is the absolute word of God, reliable and trustworthy in all that it says. So, do you think we got a problem? Pastor Kerry, you're just wasting your time exhorting us to think biblically. Because we don't think the Bible has any more authority over us than the Quran does from the Islam faith. I didn't say that. You're saying? Well, that's sort of the mindset, isn't it? If the Bible doesn't have authority over our life, then it's just another holy book from some holy religion. It's nice. It says nice things. It's a nice story about Jesus. But it doesn't only not speak into my life much. It doesn't have authority to direct my life and cause me to act in obedience in a certain direction. Simply put, and you recognize this in the culture in which you live, and we're not here whining about it today. Friends, this is our mission field. We need to own it. Maybe you are here, and if you're one of the people here who says, I'm in that certain percentage. I don't know if I believe it all. this," Then this is a welcome, safe place to do it. No judgment, because we are here to discover afresh and anew what does it mean to let the Scriptures Order our life and frame up not only our attitudes, but also our actions. We are in a new mission field, and this mission field needs to hear the truth of Scripture, but the mission field needs to understand that the truth of Scripture is not there because mom or dad said so, or you sang a song in Sunday school. The truth of Scripture is there because it gives evidence of itself and it is reliable because it is reliable pointing to an event by which we are here. Now hang with me on this. I want to make this statement. Your trust in authoritative truth is historical. You and I are here if we are a believer in Christ or if we're a seeker after God today, not because of a book or a collection of 66 books. 
Now, this collection of 66 books, this Bible speaks a story. We are here because of a historical event. And that historical event is the entrance of God Himself into this world through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did live a sinless life. He died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. He was raised from the grave. He ascended to the heavens. He's coming back again. But we are here because of the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that historical event, we then begin to understand, well, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we probably ought to give heed to what He said being true. And then as you listen and you understand the teachings of Jesus as recorded for us, He references things that come before Him as being true of Scripture. And then those who wrote about Him as eyewitnesses afterwards, their stuff is true based upon that event being true. It was the eyewitnesses. It was the eyewitnesses to the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which we can base our belief in the authority of the Word. If Jesus was to walk in here today and He was to walk up on this stage and we all saw the nail prints in His hands, all right, from being on the cross, knowing that He'd been raised from the dead, would you give heed to what He'd want to say? Anybody else been raised from the dead here today? Raised yourself from the dead? Just your second, third go around? Anybody? Well, Jesus walks in here. Because of that event, He would speak with authority knowing all things. And as the Scripture said, He came from the Father. He was God Himself. So it's because of Jesus Christ that we trust in the authority of Scripture. The authority that we trust in, um, the trust in our authoritative truth is historical. It's historical. I got some numbers up here for you. Zero, 30, 70, 312, 350, and 388. Those are not lottery numbers. Those are numbers on a timeline, and I chose to really be cheap on the timeline today. Jesus Christ was born in the year zero. Actually, because they changed the calendars and realized they were off, I won't go into all that, He was probably born uh, in 2 or 3 B.C. When you move forward to number 30, that was the year in which Jesus Christ was crucified. He was resurrected after three days. And a couple months after that, the church began. The church movement through now two millennials. So, zero to 30 was the life of Jesus. At the year 30, the world transformation event of the crucifixion, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the beginning of the church. Now, the next number is 70. Now, do you know anything why 70, the year 70, would be of any historical value? Well, because the year 70 is when the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was taken over by the Romans. You see, it was like four years prior to that, that uh, the Jews, they rose up in rebellion against Rome and they tried to thwart the the Roman leadership that was over them. Uh, Vespasian 
he rolled down from uh, Galilee with his troops and, and all the people that were against the Romans and, and fighting against them, the Jewish people, he would seize them, they would be killed. He rolled down from the Sea of Galilee down to uh, Jerusalem. He ended up going back and becoming emperor in uh, Rome and then he turned things over to his son uh, uh, Titus. And, and then... Terrible things happened in 70. In 70, thousands and tens of thousands of Jewish people were killed. There was a, a, uh, um, like a um, ditch dug completely around the walls of Jerusalem and uh, a berm there, like an earthen wall. And Jewish people were crucified by the tens of thousands, tens of thousands and killed as an example to those who were inside of Jerusalem. And on August 6th of the year 70 A.D., Jerusalem was seized. The temple was destroyed. Jewish people were taken captive to be slaves. In fact, the slave market value went down because of the numbers, tens of thousands, they say, of, of, of Jewish people taken into slavery. And none of them could live there. That's a pretty catastrophic event. Did you, any of you ever read about 70 A.D. in your Scriptures? No. It's not there. And it's one of the reasons that it's believed that between the years 30 and 70, that's where the full New Testament was written. Actually, probably between 50 and 70, or some say maybe on up to 86 or whatever. You can debate all that kind of thing. But in that short window of time, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, James, all that was written in that short window of time right there between 30 and 70. Really between 50 and 70 in that window. Because don't you think if that cataclysmic event of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem had happened, that there would be some reference to it in all the New Testament pages we have. But it's not there. It's not there. So it gives credence that what we have was written during that time. But written during that time, is it a reliable thing that was written during that time? I want to give you just one example of that. In Luke 3, verse 1, Luke himself says this in reference to his Gospel that he's writing, his historical account in his mind. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etheria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Albania, Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This verse here. What do you think? He says, bring it on. Fact check me on this one. He was absolute. He was resident in 
making sure that people knew that he knew that what he was writing was historically accurate and can be compared against all these other time frames, all these other different kinds of leaders. This account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And then Luke went on to write volume 2, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And those Acts go all the way up and they seemingly end without any reference to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in the year 70. During that window of time, people like Luke and others, they wrote historically accurate, truthful accounts of what happened when God sent His Son to this earth. People like him and, and Peter and some of the other disciples, you know, they would be like, you know, hey, we saw him. He came. You crucified him. He rose from the grave and we saw him again. And you need to say you're sorry now. That message, that eyewitness account, of the life and the power of Jesus Christ happened not just here between the 50 and the 70, but that is what grew the church between 70 and the year 312 when Constantine designated Christianity as the state religion of the Roman world. It's also the period of time when people were put to death for their faith. They were put to death for their faith because of this witness account, this historical thing that brought authority in their life. This is to be true, so we're going to listen to the words of Jesus. We're going to listen to those who saw Jesus. In the New Testament, you didn't get in the New Testament uh, as one of your letters unless you were an eyewitness account of Jesus. Even Paul, who saw Jesus after he ascended to the heavens, who Jesus revealed Himself to him, Paul saying, I saw the Lord. And these accounts are put together and they staked their very life on the historical record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the church went from nobody to taking over the whole Roman world. It's interesting, Constantine, uh, who was persecuting Christians and those kinds of things, trying to control as emperor the Roman government at that time, even his mom became a Christian when Christianity was still illegal. And one of the reasons Constantine established Christianity then as the uh, uh, religion, if you will, of the Roman Empire, which extended all the way from Rome around the Mediterranean Rim, all right, to Egypt and thereafter, is because he realized that the Roman gods were not being followed anymore. People were becoming Christians everywhere. And it was like, well, how do I unify this vast Roman Empire? And so one of the reasons that he established Christianity as the official state religion was to unify his kingdom. Three fifty. 350 is the first year that the Old Testament, which it wasn't called the Old Testament, the Old Hebrew Scriptures... So I identified that around somewhere, I guess, around the year of 150. They start referring to it as Old Testament. All these letters and the Gospels and things, that wasn't really called the New Testament until uh, later on. But it was the year 350 that they finally brought those two and put them together in one volume like we have today. The year 350. But it wasn't called the Bible until 
388, 38 years later. Now with this timeline, this is what I want to encourage you about this morning as you take context in the timeline that you live here in the year 2020. When does this explosive growth of Christianity happen? It happened between the writing of the documents, right? And when Constantine established it as the state religion, incredible growth in those uh, 280-some years there or whatever. It happened before anybody could go buy a Bible. So if you're concerned today whether from a teacher or a friend, that the Bible has a bunch of errors and all this, and I'm just going to chuck the faith. You go, well, you may think that. I don't personally think that. I think it's uh, reliable, that it's uh, inspired, that it's inerrant. Um, But aside from that, let's look at the historical event because my faith is not based upon the Bible because the Bible tells me so. My faith is based upon Jesus Christ and the historical event of His life, death, and resurrection that He's coming Again, my faith is based upon an event, not so much the Bible. Now, the Bible speaks to me that event, and I'm not diminishing that in any way. Please don't go there this morning. That's not what I'm doing. But I think this is critical because when I get in debates and arguments and interactions with people, we can go back in the nuances of did they really did they uh, really walk through the water? Was the Red Sea really parted? Did the Jericho walls really come tumbling down? Or what about this event or that event? I can't really believe in that. And how old do you Christians think the world is? Science says it's all these millennials. Friends, we can get caught up in all those debates, but you are not going to win any of those debates, even though you can go and you can find uh, Scripture and analysis of that which could give context to it friends we do not influence anybody to consider the authority of the word unless we take them back to the historical event of jesus christ and how that's recorded and how history itself even non-biblical history articulates this beautiful stream of transformation in the modern known world at that time your trust in authoritative truth is historical. Well, I I want it to be scientific. (laughs) Do you know you cannot scientifically prove that you got up this morning? Science is taking something into a lab and recreating it. But you can prove historically through reliable witness accounts and that's the journey that's in our world today. Oh, scientists, science, science is like some supreme God. Well, the God of the supreme world created all truth and He's over science. But do not be persuaded by skeptics, atheists, whatever it may be, that you have no credibility for your faith because it's not scientific. You have credibility for your faith because it's historically accurate and it happened, it's true. Some of this timeline, if you want to look more deeply into it, um, there's a book called Stealing uh, from God by Frank Turek. And and he, in chapter 7, outlines in a real simple type of format all some of this historical accuracy of the account of what happened during that time in those timeline periods. Your trust is authoritative because 
it's historical. So let me finish up with these verses and this exhortation to you today. Jesus said, You study the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. Jesus was around a lot of people who were letter of the law kind of individuals. Legalist. Hebrew Scriptures. Mishnah, other kinds of Scriptures. There were other kinds of documents that were trying to interpret it. They became very legalistic. And He just looked at them and got weary of them. He got weary of them, if I can say this, being Bible thumpers. And He says, life is in Me. You come to Me. It's in John, the first part of John, that John in his Gospel, he records it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was basing his faith in the transformation of the known world that time and individuals around him on the historically accurate account of Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.13 says, if there is no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is useless and so is your faith. Friends, today, we can trust the authority of the Scriptures because they are a historically accurate account of the one who is the Word, spoke the Word, lived the Word, died on our behalf and was raised from the grave, ascended to the heavens is coming again. We live in between the times. Put 2020 on that timeline. We are in a difficult world because Scriptural authority is being bashed. Credibility of a Christian faith is. Credence as to if Jesus was God. All kinds of things crumbling. But does it change the fact of history? It does not change the fact of history. And Jesus says, come to Me that you may have life. And through Christ, through the record, the prophecies of Him, those who foresaw Him coming as the Messiah, those who witnessed His presence, those who watched the transformation of the world because of those who became His followers. That's why we come back and we rest on the authority of God's Word. Then we take God's Word And as it says in Psalm 119, delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. There's a Bible app called YouVersion. If you don't have that little icon on your phone, you need to download it. You take the word of God and you let it speak into your life. Begin with the Gospel of John, a great account of Jesus, and let the story speak authority to your life. You know, some of the reasons scholars want to push, oh, the New Testament documents were written further down, the year 90, so and so and so forth, is because it's believed that for something that's a legend, 
become what people think is a historical fact takes about 70 years. Friends, it was in a short period of time after the life of Jesus that the New Testament was written. And because of that, we can trust in the reliability, the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the authority of Scripture. Take the Scripture. Let it breathe into your life. I want to exhort us to think biblically, but you first have to cross the bridge. Do I believe that what the Bible says is true and speaks authoritative in my life? This week we're going to see hearings of a Supreme Court justice candidate. The questions that are going to be presented to Amy Coney Barrett are going to be based upon her belief in the Constitution. At least I trust most of the questions go that direction. And the big telling thing will be, do you believe in the Constitution as an originalist? Or do you believe the Constitution is a living document? You know the difference? Does a judge base their decision upon the original intent of what, what that Constitution said? Or does culture change and the Constitution become fluid and it can be reinterpreted in different ways because of today's context? The difference between an originalist and someone who believes the Constitution is a living document. Friends, with Scripture, you need to be an originalist. What did the Scripture originally mean? In the cultural divide that you're up against, it's saying, well, Scripture, even if it's true, is a living document. So you can believe what you want to believe more based upon what's happening today. You take that which was the original intent. You then contextualize it into the world that we're in. But you let the living Christ speak life and truth. May you be blessed this week as you do this as you delight in His decrees, as you do not neglect His Word, and may you think biblically in the culturally divided world as you go. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.